You know what I did? I goes down to probation. Like I actually believe in all that shit they're handing out there. Here's something for you. Place in Hallbrook. Needs assemblers. 1.30 a week, 4 to midnight. Steady work. It'll keep you out of trouble. Beautiful. Well, I live in Somerville. How the hell am I going to get to Hallbrook in the middle of the afternoon? Never mind, for Christ's sake. How the fuck am I going to get home in the middle of the night? Buy a car. With what? I haven't got no money. What the fuck am I going to buy a car with? Why the fuck they think I need a job in the first place? Cinema, the film podcast where a love letter is like a bullet from a gun. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Andrew Dominic's 2012 political crime drama, Killing Them Softly. One quick note, during our discussion, I read a theory about the film that was posted on movies.stackexchange.com by user ShizZ. I didn't credit it then, so I'm doing it now. Anyway, here's Carrie with the plot summary. Two ex-cons are hired by a low-level crook to rob a mob-protected card game. They pull it off, but can't keep their mouths shut to save their lives. Literally. The mob brings in Jackie Cogan, a hitman, to take care of the idiots responsible. And Jackie thinks it's business as usual, but when his team falls apart, he finds his hands getting dirtier than he expected. Killing Them Softly has a very straightforward narrative, so much of what makes the film so interesting comes from its directing, cinematography, and sound design, which occasionally veer into the avant-garde. Obviously, the first two elements are harder to sample, so I'll illustrate this via the sound design. In our first clip, which is literally the audio that opens the film, the sound design establishes a bleak, tense atmosphere while also undercutting the words of a politician. Here's that clip. us forward. The American promise alive is that promise that's always set this country apart. It's a promise that says each of us has the freedom to make of our own lives what we want. Much of the film's plot revolves around Jackie Cogan, played by Brad Pitt, a hitman brought in to take care of whoever's responsible for the robbery. In our second clip, Jackie talks to a middleman, played by Richard Jenkins, about hiring a different hitman to kill the organizer of the robbery, Johnny Amato, a.k.a. Squirrel, played by Vincent Curatola. And in explaining why, Jackie provides some context for the film's title. Here's that clip. 
You, can you hit Trapman? Sure. And what about this squirrel fella? Because he seems like the leading candidate to me. Probably not. I need Mickey for that one. Mickey? New York Mickey? Why can't you handle? Because squirrel knows me. Didn't I say that already? He needed something done once. Dylan couldn't do it, so I did it, so he knows me. He's going to figure if he's waiting on someone, he's waiting on me or Dylan. So what? You ever killed anyone? No. You can get touchy-feely. Touchy-feely? Emotional, not fun. A lot of fuss. They cry, they plead, they beg, they piss themselves, they call for their mothers. It's embarrassing. I like to kill them softly. From a distance. Not close enough for feelings. Don't like feelings. Don't want to think about them. You need Mickey. What's the problem? Mickey's expensive. Not at the moment. You get him for 10? 15. You do it for 15? 15, asshole. I think in this economy, a quick 15 for two days' work would sound pretty good to Mickey. We'll sell him a party. Fly in, whack a guy, fly out. Quick 15. Fly coach. Mickey, played by James Gandolfini, shows up to do the job, but almost immediately disappears into his vices. In our third clip, Jackie confronts an inebriated Mickey in the latter's hotel room. Here's that clip. First time I met Sonny. She walked in the room, I got a fucking enormous heart on. I could have fought five guys with this fucking prong I had. <laughs> so fucking hard I had the skin from under my eyes. Mickey. It kind of went down into the cock so it could expand. Mickey. I fucking, you know, after I just wanted to fuck her so bad. She was so fucking beautiful. Mickey. I felt like a man. Mick. She made me feel good. What? You gonna be all right? Tomorrow night, the next. Not right now, what the fuck? Leave me alone. Look, this after was supposed to meet a guy, all right? I got a guy to take you around and all. I can't go out. What the fuck are you talking about? No, I can't go out. You come up here to do something, remember? For that. All right, go get him. Go get the fucking guy and we'll set this thing up. Go get him now, we'll set the fucking thing up. Go get him. You, I'm gonna tell you what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to fucking bed. It's 2.30 now, you shit. I'm gonna call you at 7.30, and if I don't wake you up, I am gonna drop a dime on a couple of cops I know. I'm gonna take you back to where you're supposed to be. Oh, yeah? Yeah. No ass, no more booze, no nothing. Get yourself a shower and go to bed. I'll get you up and tell you where you gotta be. I don't take orders from shits like you. 7.30, get some sleep. Killing Them Softly's characters are not supposed to be likable or even good people. And this is largely conveyed through non-plot dialogue in which characters tend to speak crassly or offensively. You heard a little of this in the last clip, and our fourth clip, a conversation between Frankie, played by Scoot McNary, and Russell, played by Ben Mendelsohn, should further illustrate my point. Here's that clip. Okay, so we going out there or what? That depends. Don't depend on me. It's Thursday. You coming with me or not? Oh man. 
fuck that guy. He's a dick. Doesn't know if he wants me or not. Oh, I don't need him, mate. I got my own thing going on, mate. Me and Kenny, you know? We're snatching these dogs. Purebreds. And selling them down in Florida. I got five grand in the kick, mate. When I get seven, I'm gonna go and buy an ounce of smack. And I'm gonna become a dealer. Plus, this afternoon, I got a girl I can go and fuck. <laughs> right? So I'm thinking, it's a choice, you know? Ooh, tough one. Am I gonna go and fuck a girl or am I gonna go to a meeting with the squirrel? Oh, fuck a girl, meeting with squirrel, fuck squirrel. I think I'll go fuck the girl. I like to see this girl. Kind of girl you can screw off and add in a paper. Beautiful. Probably got a couple handfuls of broken glass in there. Yeah, well, yeah, these girls, you see them. You probably wouldn't want to rape them, but all the plumbing works just fine. And finally, the film's soundtrack is loaded with on-the-nose needle drops. Seeing as Heroin by The Velvet Underground is way too long for our purposes, I'm going with the even less subtly used Money by Barrett Strong as our final clip. So here's Money, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of Killing Them Softly. Emily, 
It's me again in Chicago. <laughs> Our beloved Chicago lady. And we're talking about a... Belong oh no. Uh, we're talking about a movie uh, from director Andrew Dominic, uh, the 2012 film Killing Them Softly. Not to be confused with every other fucking thing that has been named after the song Killing Them Softly or Killing Her Softly. Killing Me Softly. Killing Me Softly. There's been so many things named after this. But we're talking about, we're talking about the Brad Pitt movie this time. And, uh, Not the Fuji's song or the Roberta Flack song. Those are the same song, though. Yeah, well, almost. It's the same song. But anyway, <laughs> Emily, you're new to this movie. What did you think of it? It was pretty much what I thought, but more beautiful. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow, summed it up. You nailed it on the head. It was about money and greed and killing. There were killings. I don't think any of them were softly. No, I or, was yeah. disappointed in Brad Pitt's uh, line. Because he said that he liked to kill them softly, but it was hard steel. Well, I think he meant softly for himself. I feel like we can get into, we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. Carrie, what did you think of this movie? You've seen this before. I have. I think this was my third viewing. I remember we saw this in theaters. I think we saw it with your parents. Yeah, I think my sister was there, too. Okay. Uh, star of the last episode, Alex, I believe. But if not, we saw it for sure with my parents. <laughs> and my parents love this movie. <laughs> Continuing, uh, listener, if you ever really want to know what type of family I come from, know that my parents loved this movie when we saw it. Yeah. They have a great uh, sense of movie taste. Hence, they passed it on to you. But... Yeah. Uh, okay, my thoughts on this movie. Alright. I fucking love the first 30 minutes of this movie. And then the rest of this movie, I could just not watch. <laughs> <laughs> I, once James Gandolfini, and I hate to say this because I love James Gandolfini, but once he shows up, the movie just like kind of, I don't want to say it tanks, but it completely loses my interest. Yeah, he starts talking about his wife at home and his and, like fucking strippers and being, and being a, a drunk. Person. Yeah, and it's and it's not that he's doing a bad. His he performs great. You know, he's a great actor. He does a wonderful performance. It's just that nothing about the last two thirds of this movie is compelling in the way that the first thirty minutes are compelling. Yeah, and you know what it made me think of, Paolo. So, just to echo what you said, Emily, this movie is gorgeous. It looks beautiful. Like, it is very well directed, and the cinematography is wonderful. But that doesn't mean that it, it's, like, a fantastic, wonderful movie. <laughs> uh, it just means that it was really well directed, and it looked beautiful. There's lots of movies like yeah. that. But what it reminded me of, Paolo, is when we saw God's Pocket... Yes, I actually thought about God's Pocket, future secret cinema episode, God's Pocket. Where God's Pocket and this movie have, like, the makings of everything that could be a fantastic movie. Like, absolutely front to back, you know, amazing. But there's something, like, in the middle that just, like, totally loses my interest. And it's usually, well, and I think the trend is that it's so drawn out in there's like monologues that just lead to nothing it's not that they're pointless monologues it's just that the development of the monologue doesn't lead you to want to watch the rest of the movie if that makes sense so 
I think this movie is good overall, but I, like I said, I think that the thir first 30 minutes are fucking genius, and they're, they're so well directed and constructed, and there's tension, and emotion, and you really enjoy watching the characters, but like the last two thirds is just kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, ask me how what I thought of the movie. Hey, Paulo! What did you think of this movie? Well, I do want to point this out really quickly. <laughs> um, my favorite critic, Mike D'Angelo, more or less completely agreed with Carrie. Like, his, his oh, point of view really? on this movie was almost exactly that, which is that, uh, well, his, the way, he phrased it, first time. the way he phrased it was that the moment Brad Pitt shows up, the movie, he, the way he said it was, it's not that it's necessarily a bad movie, it just ceased to be the same interesting movie that it was. Yeah. And, um, or at least it's priority shift. I would definitely agree. Like the priorities of the movie completely change once that character shows up. I definitely, I think I like this, uh, a, way more than you. I mean, you, you like it, but I, I would say I, I pretty thoroughly love this movie even in the same way that listeners of the episode images know that i will defend movies that are boring <laughs> like this, is, this made me think of images a couple times where i was like yeah this probably could be fun to watch possibly but they chose not to but i'm gonna make two crazy comparisons uh for what this movie reminds me of and why i like it so the first one um i was kind of thinking about how this movie at its core and we're gonna get into the plot in a little bit but the plot is very straightforward and the whole plot is kind of it's not a, a plot you necessarily have to do it they say every step of the plot in this movie um but in that way they not only say it and but they perform it and in that way you know, like they're like okay we're gonna kill this guy and then like the next scene yeah. is you watch them it makes it sound it makes the movie sound really bad <laughs> but no I but, but right. it's true it is very true <laughs> it is like emily said it's exactly what it says it's going to be uh, provided that you aren't misled into thinking it's going to be like a crime thriller, <laughs> like if you see if you see the trailer, it does give a pretty solid indication of the movie's preoccupations and where the plot's going. But it reminded me because we just watched this uh, over the weekend again, and it's going to be a future secret cinema episode. But we watched Schizopolis, and the way in which this reminded me of Schizopolis is it feels like a director who is in a position where he's like, okay. I need to try some stuff out. And Schizopolis, it's kind of like just a personal exercise. It's not, it's mostly catharsis for Steven Soderbergh. But this, it's a director who just made, he, Andrew Dominic before this made The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which got a couple Oscar nominations. It definitely was seen as like one of the it best It was nominated for... Uh, Casey Affleck got a Well, nomination. it was nominated for Best Longest Title. Yes, and yeah, and uh, unironically best cinematography, which again ties into this movie, like beautiful looking movies. But it very clearly strikes me as this story is so straightforward that it's kind of an excuse to play with. Not only there's some political stuff that we're definitely going to get into that he wanted to talk about, but it's also clearly an excuse for him to try these very straightforward scenes with different atmospheres and tones and editing styles and camera tricks. And so even though, yeah, it is like, th this isn't really a movie you watch for the plot. You watch it as, as a person who loves, who wants to direct and loves studying directing. It's fascinating for that reason to see all the different things he tries. And then the other movie I wanted to compare it to is 
uh, this seems like a crazy one, but The Neon Demon by Nicholas Winding mm. Refn, because uh, Nicholas Winding Refn movies, they're super straightforward. That's like as straightforward as a movie can get is Drive and Only God Forgives. And Neon Demon is taking Nicholas Winding Refn's usual aesthetic approach where he's like, I want to experiment with these images, and it kind of ties it to a plot that whenever the plot needs to kick in slows down the aesthetic and it kind of because the aesthetic is so interesting you're like i don't really want to sit and watch people talk right now i kind of want to just soak in the experimentation and aesthetic that you're putting on before us and so it makes me think of those two movies but both of those movies are movies that are at very least excite me and this movie is very exciting in an artistic way, not in a literal <laughs> enjoyment yeah. way. I do enjoy a good director when it comes to a drug scene. Yes. Yeah, wasn't good that scene awesome? Scenes, how they explore the fun lighting and the different lenses and the cuts in the dr- in the heroin scene. Well, yeah, the sobri- and the sobriety, like, going in and out. When oh, ben so good. Mendelssohn's character is, like, kind of falling asleep, and then, and then you know, and Scoot McNary, like, pulls him back and in. And don't they, like, put a fish... Uh, fisheye on at one point. Yeah, it well, certainly looks like, like it. From one perspective, it's fisheye, and then it cuts, and it's different. I love the part where he, like, or I think it's Ben Mendelsohn's character, Russell, um, he is about, he's shooting heroin, and so it's kind of blurry already, because they're kind of, you can, it seems like the way it's being shot, he's already started, but he takes, he injects with a little bit more heroin, and we get this, like, blinding white light that just completely, like, overwhelms the image. Like, there's, it's almost completely abstract. And eventually you kind of see, like, the, the headlights of a car, and it's, it segues into this story that, that Russell is thinking about. But it does it in a way that so, so visually conveys the, like, the mental process of someone slowed down by heroin. And there's, like, another scene later on where... It's a, a character, or this Russell gets arrested on heroin, and they show like a moment where the cops push his head against a wall, and the way in which even that, like the sound is is muffled, and it feels like it's in slow motion. It seems like he's in another reality from the cops arresting him. There's so many good shots. Like that's that's one of the only reasons to really watch this movie is like how incredible some of the shots are. Like the scene where. Sam Shepard and his goonie go to confront Ray Liotta's character. And it's, the camera is set on the corner of a house. And so at first you're facing this like entrance to the house where there's a door and a window. And you see Sam Shepard and his goonie enter the house and they confront Ray Liotta and then they throw him out a window. (laughs) And then they bring him back in through the window and the camera pans to another door on the another side of the house. And then you see him throw Ray Liotta out the door. It's, like, such a clean shot, but yeah. you can, like, see the act. Even though you're not actually seeing the action of the shot because you're seeing the exterior of a house, you're seeing the... It's it's just, like, a beautiful way to represent that without showing the actual violence of the shot. There's also a shot I really liked where... And there it, definitely is a lot of violence shown. Oh, man, so much... Like, I love that scene where Ray Liotta gets shot in the rain. Oh, that's so incredible. You mean, like, gets beaten up? 
No, no, where they're at the, where he's parked oh, at the stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at the traffic light, and then he, like, after he gets shot, he slowly it's rolls in. It's all slow motion. Oh, it's so great. The, the scene where he is beat up in the rain, again, the rain, uh, I think I have seen that scene in it, just by itself, in, uh, just, like, some list of, like, best fight scenes of all time. Oh, yeah. It's for sure. It's, like, with the the contrasting colors and the light. It looks like, it looks like almost like cops, I thought, where it's, like, a handheld camcorder with a light shining on the individual. Yeah, it's it's definitely, like, a single spotlight, like, yeah. lighting some of these shots. And it's filmed in a way where you see, like, I want to say it's, it, you can tell it's a torrential downpour, but you see, like, a third of the raindrops. So you see rain, but it's also kind of spaced out, but you can still hear it and everyone is soaking wet and so the rain doesn't really cloud the image as much as it's just like just another element it's it's such an incredible moves, looking scene like, yeah the camera moves as if like it's feeling when ray is hit yeah and, and the punches too like he gets hit and the it's very brutal like it's it's not filmed in a way where we're seeing like blood or organs i mean carrie and i just saw brawl in cell block 99 and it's it's not like that where it's you're like oh my god i still have flashbacks (laughs) to that movie it's so good there's a scene oh my god emily you might like this it's really good vince vaughn he plays does he get beat up i would like to see no he instead beats the shit out of people but it's like a reverse um the raid or a reverse judge dread where he has to like break into the prison and beat the shit out of people in the prison. So he slowly has to, like, get in more trouble so he gets into more intense prisons. <laughs> but he, uh, spoiler alert, there's a scene where he, like, beats the fucking shit out of someone <laughs> and he steps on their head and then slides their head across the floor and he flips them over and you just see like their oh, fa- oh my god oh it's so I always, awful I, oh, I, oh. I, I want to talk about more scenes from that but we'll just have to not it's, it's, you got <laughs> listen to be a secret cinema, listen right? no it's like it, this movie has very deservedly got a ton of critical acclaim lately like I really liked that guy the aforementioned Mike D'Angelo had Brawl and so like ninety nine his top five of the year. Like critics appreciate this uh, movie. It was already, so good. So. But, and then we watched his other movie, Bone Tomahawk, and that was really good too. But so really quickly tie back into the movie. Sorry. It's not that it's not like <laughs> insane violence where it's like the fu- you're not supposed to enjoy this violence. You're supposed no. to you're seeing Ray Liotta's character brutalized and it's mostly, again, in sound design. Like, in the way you see the fist yeah. connect, but it has just the right sound effect. Or, like, the CG blood will kind of, like, spray out from his face in a believable way, but also in, like, a, a way to, like, emphasize the pain he's in. I have to say, every time I see Ray Liotta now, I think about, I listen to his WTF interview with Mark Marin. And in that interview, he, like, really, you know, he he talks about himself, but he doesn't really talk about himself. What he mostly talks about is, like, how tough it is to get work in Hollywood. (laughs) And how he's like, I just want to work. I want consistent work. And the reason he was on WTF is he was promoting his TV show. And he was like, yeah, hopefully the TV show gets renewed so I have consistent Aww, work. Ray and I was Leona. like, oh, Ray Liotta, you just want to work. Yes, All right. He's such a working actor. We're, we're like over 15 minutes of the episode and we have not explained the plot. But I think we could probably go, at least go over what happens in this movie in less than five minutes. 
I think we could do it. Yeah, well, the, the simplified plot is three dumb idiots think they can knock over a mob casino. Um, well, it's like a, a, a backroom card game. Yeah, and they... It's pull, run by Ray Liotta's character. Marky. Marky. Marky Trapman. And Marky previously knocked over his own card game, and people kind of know this, and so these three dumb guys assume that... If they knock over Marky's game, everyone will assume Marky did it, and it, and he'll be blamed, and they'll get away. So, the and these three guys, one of them, actor unknown, uh, the one who comes up with the plan, but the other two are Russell, we mentioned before, played by Ben Mendelsohn, and our beloved uh, Scoot McNary, who plays Scoot. the character Frankie, and is sort of as much of the main character of this as Brad Pitt is, even though he's not famous, he wasn't famous at this time, so he did not get top billing or anything, but... Um, I think so, he's in the main cast. He's Yeah, I mean, he's... he's now on IMDb, he's yeah. like at the top. Oh yeah, because he was in Argo and stuff after this. Yeah, but, well, and he had a successful AMC show. That's true. Uh, but um, how dare you forget? No, <laughs> uh, well, I didn't watch it. But um, I did. But, okay, I watched. So I'm trying to get this done in five minutes, Carrie. Well, <laughs> You're not. You brought up Scoot McNary, and uh, I told you we so were going to anyway, gush about Scooping. So anyway, they rob uh, Frankie and Russell rob the card game, and uh, and, and and they get away with they get, it. They get away with it, but uh, the top mob people, nobody at the card game, people who we never see in the movie. They hire somebody to basically find out what happened and take care of this, and that character is Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt quickly figures out that it wasn't Marky, but they says, like, we gotta kill Marky anyway because it's it's ruined for him. Like, no one's gonna trust him, everyone's gonna knock him over because they know that yeah. he has this connection. And so Brad Pitt uh, it kills <laughs> uh, Marky and then tracks down Scoot, and kills him and... Oh, the guy, his name is Squirrel, that planned the thing. He kills he kills Squirrel, then kills Frankie, and then collects his money. And then at some oh, point... Oh, and Ben... Yeah. Ben Mendelsohn gets arrested. Uh, I think it's like a... I don't know, just a totally separate thing. And... Well, he stored heroin... An ounce, like... Or... At, I don't even at know. At, like, a public train station. Yeah. So there, there's, like, a, a bunch of cops waiting for him. But... Literally, that is the plot. That's the whole plot. <laughs> That's the plot. Oh, and there's... We should also mention American Sweetheart... America's Sweetheart, yeah. Richard Jenkins. Is the middleman for the mob and Brad Pitt. He's, He's like the coordinator. Yeah. And, I mean, I didn't bring it up because it's not the plot in any way, but James Gandolfini is in this oh, right. as a character named Mickey, whose Who function... Who is a hitman? Yes. He is another... Who doesn't hit- kill anyone doesn't in the kill movie, anybody. by the yeah. way. And that's why I said, like, he, he... Okay, let's talk about this for a second. He this is genuinely... Th- okay, there's clearly some sort of subtextual meaning or metaphorical meaning. Uh, with, yeah, okay. because we... The one thing we haven't talked about is what this movie's actually about. Oh, yeah, Carrie, well, you're gonna... Which is <laughs> the economy. Oh, well, yeah. the first scene in the movie is, uh, like, you don't see him, but it's, it's Scoot walking... And he's smoking a cigarette, and there's trash uh, everywhere. And oh, opening this is opening, so yeah. it's awesome. Like this, okay, this it's this Godardian cut between like we see a tunnel, so it's like this this like white space with paper rolling through it, and then just black. Everything that is not light in the tunnel is just darkness. And you hear Obama speaking over it, and then it cuts between that and blackness with this just like 
evil drone under it. And it keeps cutting back and forth between, like, the warmth and excitement of Obama's voice to, like, this, like, like very unsettling thing. And it keeps just, like, undercutting all of Obama's optimism and hope. And that is, and then that is in... That sort of like edited sequence is what uh, Scoot McNary's character gets introduced in, and the, yeah. the papers blowing around. It's super. It, the light is like so bright, but it just feels sickly at the same time. It's such an incredible. And they opening. picked a perfect spot to film it in New Orleans. Like, what a perfect example. Yeah, it typifies like the American experiment in many ways. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Well, and. The so I uh, I looked up the director and like what he had to say about this movie and he actually ad- adapted the the movie from a book and um, what he said was that as I started adapting it it was a story of an economic crisis and it was an economic crisis in an economy that was funded by gambling and the crisis occurred due to a failure in regulation. And so he couldn't so this, deny that... This mob game is the stock market. Right. He couldn't deny the parallels between this and, like, the economic crisis well, that happened due to the housing market. Yeah. And so here's what part of the crazy brilliance slash off-putting weirdness of this movie is that Andrew Dominic was like, how can I play with this... Me- how can I play with this similarity? And he decided to... Make it as literal and overwhelming as possible. <laughs> like, there is no subtlety to this. The problem, mostly, honestly, for me, is that when this was happening, 2007, 2008, this was, like, the first year I was living in a dorm in my life. This was not a time where I was, like, deeply aware of the news and the things that were happening in America. Sure. I was, like, I, I, the first time living on my own in my life. So when I saw this, and even still when I see this, this is not the specifics of the banking crisis escape me. And so the poli- the the as much as it's like, oh, he clearly is talking about America and how America is stupid in a lot of ways, but the specifics of his critique escape me and that's kind of why I would say with the James Gandolfini thing, it's like it clearly Who's the drunk asshole who comes in from out of town? Yeah, I think it paints more with broad strokes than I don't know if it holds up to specific... Well, and maybe that's an actual character in the book. So the adaptation is just taking him from the book and putting him in, like, a broader context of the economy. Or maybe just to display how bleak people's outlook is on life because he's just kind of like, yeah, I drink a lot, I drink too much, my wife wants to divorce me... Well, I'm, I'm probably gonna, going to prison. I'm, well, and you guys heard what happened with Sam Shepard's character too, right? Nobody knows. No, he Sam Shepard. He's dead. Okay, so the when Brad Pitt shows up to meet Richard Jenkins for the first time, Richard Jenkins is like, "Why isn't Dylan here? What? Yeah, do you have it written down?" Actually, I just I wrote it was one of my favorite things. So when Brad Pitt is introduced, I just assume like, "Oh, he's gonna talk to Richard Jenkins. And he's gonna figure out who he's gonna murder." Um, Brad Pitt says, who's running things? And Richard Jenkins says, you have no idea. They've got a total corporate mentality. Yeah. That was good. Oh, yeah, that nobody, no decision makers. Yeah. yeah there's, you have no idea. It's just a vague, like, people at the top, don't worry about it. Yeah. Sure. But in that scene, uh, Richard Jenkins says, like, where's Dylan? And... Brad Pitt says something along the lines of... Brad Pitt's character's name is Jackie Cogan. I believe the novel that's adapted yeah. from is Cogan's Trade. Yeah. And so, yeah. But 
when he's introduced, uh, he says Dylan had was feeling some sort of sharp pain in his chest, like very clearly alluding to like a heart attack. And then later, Richard Jenkins asks about Dylan and. Right, it's like, I have no idea. I, I don't really know what's going on with him. And then in the end, we find out when Richard Jenkins is basically trying to say, like, well, yeah, I'm going to shortchange you. Talk to Dylan about it. And then Brad Pitt's like, no, Dylan's dead. And I think the implication, at least for me, if I was going to guess, based on the fact that the two older hitmen or enforcers are both, like, one is dead of a heart attack and the other is, like, such a, like a total mess of a human being the idea of like living in this like sort of corrupt world at the level of like you are just an enforcer for the more powerful people where all you do is the dirty work but you don't actually get any of the real benefit no uh, and there's just, like, no it, recourse yeah there's no recourse for you to then um you know have a grievance and say you were shortchanged or you are owed something so it just drains them of life and so again if this is just a metaphor for capitalism then it's again like the the way in which like certain people are just tools of the capitalist system like i like i i have it on my phone and i can look it up in a second but someone tried to make like a character by character comparison to all of the the real people that this is involved in and in part of the comparison actually let me hold on let me grab it really quick because it's yeah i was even trying to figure out who does scoot represent here scoot's character also before i forget maybe though, he's the american people while paolo's looking that up on his phone the names of the main characters are marky mickey frankie and jackie <laughs> god i didn't notice <laughs> i was i kept i was like very bostonian yeah. But it's but, but set it, in New Orleans. Mickey, Mikey, Marky, John. They could be in a uh, Johnny was another character. They could be in a Red Sox band. <laughs> but it's set in the South. A Dead Kennedys cover band. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's, I have a couple theories. Here's the one that is more immediately interesting. All right. In the movie, illegal gambling has ceased in New Orleans because two heists have occurred at Ray Liotta's poker games, and no one knows who to trust anymore. This represents how money lending around the world largely grinded to a halt as the housing crisis began to unfold. In the movie, the mafia was making money off the gambling, so the mafia wants gambling back, just like how the world's investors were making money off of money lending, so they desperately wanted a return to normalcy in lending. From there, the allegory is less clear to me, but I think Ray Liotta's Marky could be a nod to George W. Bush. The heist went down on his watch, and though he wasn't technically involved in this particular heist, everyone knows he is shady, someone has to take a fall, so he gets whacked. Brad Pitt's Jackie might be Barack Obama, a golden boy leading candidate to take out Marky. James Gandolfini's Mickey might be John McCain, the over-the-hill other candidate who ends up getting dissed. Richard Jenkins' driver, who after the heist recruits Jackie to kill Marky, could be the American voters, or maybe the world's investor class. In any way, driver chooses Jackie over Mickey, just like Obama was chosen over McCain to replace Bush. I'm not saying I agree with that theory. I do theory. not like Gandolfini, McCain, because... <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that like... doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. But uh, again, like that's, I was just trying to think, find a theory of... like. It would that... be more likely, it seems, that... That maybe Gandolfini is Cheney? No, because it's not like Cheney was really involved with the housing market or the stock market. Sure. Really. It would be more like, 
I don't know. Maybe Lehman Brothers. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Man, I knew people, you know, in 2008 who lost their house. And, uh, yeah, it was fucking shitty. Another thing, since we're kind of just going all over the place, I wanted to point out that this movie came out the year before Wolf of Wall Street came out. And I feel like... And, you know what? what? This movie's release got delayed because it didn't want to compete with the master. Really? Why? <laughs> they, uh, to do? Yeah, they thought that, that people would not see this if they could see the master. This is easier than the master. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is way easier. Equally as beautiful. On that note, though, let's talk about this for a second. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Sorry, before we leave characters, I did write down a note about Gandolfini because as he was introduced, George Bush was talking about confidence in the economy. Oh, that yeah. was such a good pointed, like, I uh, made sure to write that down because I knew I was not going to know where Gandolfini fit in this. The human factor, yeah. confidence in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, uh... And Gandolfini is, like, the opposite of confident. Absolutely, yeah. He's brought in because Brad Pitt has confidence in him, and he's just, like, a further fuck He's a up. sad sack who's got it worn out. Man, I wish I knew more about the housing yeah. uh, market, because it, it seems like Gandolfini could be an allegory for, like, a quick fix they tried after the housing market happened. Like, well, like, crash happened. I know this isn't what the movie's going for, but, like, think about if you just think of, like, people in the government. Gandolfini is, like, a Michael Brown type. A person that gets hired to be, like, to do something very important and then completely craps out. Like, think about Michael Brown with Katrina. Like, and so, as much as I can't think of who exactly he would be, there, it is so totally believable that he represents some, like... Emily's giving you a I'm, shrug face. I'm just trying to think of, like, any specific, like, I don't remember who the Treasury Secretary was or anybody, like, I feel like HUD or anything. I feel like Paulson no, like, at one point talks during the movie. Henry Paulson? Was that his name? Hank Paulson? There's it's just one of the many oh. people who, like, talk on a TV in the background during this movie. Because it's mostly yeah. Brock and Bush. Well, and that's but... the main way that Andrew Dominic conveys that this movie is actually about the economy is through... Background noise. It's always like, oh, at in a that's, bar. That's and... kind of one of the weirdest parts about the robbery at the beginning of the movie is that all those mob gangsters are watching like gambling Bush and give a yeah, and watching C-SPAN. It's like I don't think so. I don't think they're watching C-SPAN. I mean, maybe. But if they're an, if it's an allegory for the for the market, then they would ex be paying paying very close attention to politics. Yeah. Sure, fair enough. Yeah, actually, the TVs in this function in a very similar way to the way like TVs function in the movie Brazil, where it's like the government ironically being like everything's great, we're working on it very well, and then you see on the ground I level actually, how like nothing is working, <laughs> everything's a total mess. I thought of it as not that, but as in place of. A narrator. Oh, sure. Like, I, you know, I'm explaining further with my words what's happening in front of you because what's happening in front of you is not straightforward. Yeah, but also sort of the ironic counterpoint, too, where it's it's like if, if they say something on the TV, like, like I thought it kind of meant the, like, they kind of literalized this at the very end, but I thought that it was it was clearly supposed to represent this idea that 
Obama and Bush and all these people are constantly talking about the, the way things are going to change. We're going to do all this stuff and, and uh, we're all going to work together. But while all that's happening, it affects the plot in the movie of the movie in no way. And it seems to be like this idea that these people are in, in reality are just voices on the TV and they don't actually affect things on the ground level because the system that causes these this corruption to happen is so much bigger and more complicated and older than any one president. I think the director had so much fun picking out which clips and how to put oh, yeah. them perfectly. Because <laughs> when... Um, well, and he's New Zealand. He's from New Zealand. He's a New Zealander. New Zealander? New Zealand? A Kiwi. There you go. Yeah. Uh, he's a Kiwi. <laughs> um, when Brad Pitt is in that diner and then Kenny comes to meet mm. him, one of the lackeys, uh, Kenny's just a dipshit and Brad Pitt leaves a tip and he sees, he kind of sees out of the corner of his eye that Kenny steals the $1 tip that he leaves for the, for the server. And this is as Bush is saying on TV, Americans are the most productive hard workers in the world. <laughs> as, literally, yeah. he's saying that as a person is stealing money. Well, I also, also like that. That, like, also is, like, in and of itself, like, perfect. A cap It's a perfect capitalism metaphor of, like, these people are going to get paid for the thing they're doing in that moment, and he still feels the need to steal a dollar because you just because need money. Because we are money. the most hardworking people. Mm -hmm. You just, But also, you just need money. Money is the most important yeah. thing. So, like, if you see an opportunity for money, you, you got to get it. Yeah. I've always hated that Beatles song. Can't what? buy me love. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, no. You, I can love can. the things I buy. See also Wall Street, yeah. Yeah, oh man. But um, I'd like to disagree with the comparison that Brad Pitt's character is Obama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I laughed when I heard it because I was like, this is crazy. Because there are only white men in this movie. Yeah. Another reason that this is allegorical to American politics and probably the because housing if, crisis. Because if they're representing people with power... Yeah, who else has power? Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing... Maybe it's just the white half of Obama that was represented. I think the idea is that, like, the whole... Okay, I read somewhere, so I can't take full credit for this idea, but the idea... The movie is called Killing Them Softly, and so to a certain extent that idea must be important to what the movie is about. And Brad Pitt's character gives this this little mini monologue about how when he kills people, he likes to kill them softly, which means they don't know it's coming. It's not oh, from somebody who recognizes them. It is, it's, it's just like uh, they're, they're living their life and all of a sudden they're dead. They don't have that fear or anything like that. And corporate and, America. And as you guys talked about, almost nobody of, of the people that he kills gets killed softly. Yeah, can I say something about yeah. that? Because the whole time I was thinking, like, how, what does this mean to kill them softly? How is this going to be shown in the movie? It's not shown in the movie. Because I think if this movie is supposed to be about the stock market and, or the housing crash, that's the opposite of killing people softly. What you want to do is just, like, when you put a, you know, that stupid metaphor, when you put a frog in water, you heat it slowly. Yeah. You kill it softly. Because if people... Just, um, you know, in general, American wages have flatlined. We are not, you know, wage inequity grows and grows every year. 
but because it's so gradual and slowly, people don't fight against it so much as when shit crashed. Yeah. And it was all of a sudden, and we needed something like that to wake up. But beforehand, from the 80s onward, after Reaganomics and Trickle Down, it was like, oh, things are fine. This is America. This is how things are supposed to be. If I just work harder, I can become rich. Yeah. See, I thought it was the idea of his ideal. Like it represented some sort of idealism. Like, he he has this idea of, like, I, I do this, but I try to do it in a nice way. Like, I try to I try to do it in painlessly. Like, uh, again, another, another feature of Secret Cinema movie, Mr. Death, the idea of, like, I kill people, but I do it in the way that it helps them. <laughs> it makes them feel but, better. Uh, but, again, he's talking about himself. He is selfishly talking about... he The thing that he says before he talks about killing them softly is that killing people can get emotional and it can get yucky and uncomfortable and he wants to keep a distance and that's all personal he doesn't want to have to deal with the consequences of someone knowing that they're gonna die but that's and so it's not about the person who dies being killed softly it's about brad pitt softly Killing someone for his benefit. But also, I read it more as like an in general economic terms policies that make people poor that suffocate them by taking away their livelihood. But what I'm saying is that by him not actually killing people softly, he is the character who represents something closer to like a working man. At least more so than Richard Jenkins' character or the presumed well, character's mother. That... But I'm saying he has the compromise of his stated ideal. It's one of the only characters in the movie who states a belief. And like and it's uh, like he, we go out of their way to have that moment where Brad Pitt is like, I believe this and I try to do this. And with every killing, he gets right up by Ray Liotta and his killing is in slow motion. And it is like you see the look on his face and it's a look of pain and fear and he's holding his hands up when he gets shot and uh when when uh squirrel gets killed squirrel gets shot through a window and then brad pitt has to walk right up to him as he's like gurgling and crying out in pain and um and and same and so on but um so this idea of like he doesn't kill these people softly and so he sort of he's a person who in a capitalist system has to compromise his ideals. He has one ideal and, and he has to compromise it to get his money. But then also in the end, because the people who are above him die, he is kind of grandfathered into a position where he has power and he can demand things. Yeah. I think that to me, that was if I, I would have to guess is the importance of the title. Some well, of that I can see in the Obama, uh, comparison. You know, Obama yeah. came in really idealistic. He had, you know, whatever, hope and change, all that. Obviously, he had to compromise on a lot of things, and he was pressured by big banks, and then he gave a big bailout, and that he, I don't think he really wanted to, but it had to be done. No, I don't agree it had to be done, but... Killing but them he softly would be it. a good name for the documentary about drones and <laughs> drone bombing. Oh. Yeah. I mean, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, let's bring up the last lines of the movie. Brad Pitt and Richard Jenkins meet in the bar, and Richard, Richard Jenkins is about to pay him, or is trying to pay him off. And as we mentioned before, uh, he gets shorted because they're paying him what Dylan would have been paid. Recession. Recession prices, yeah. yeah. 
And uh, what Brad Pitt says is, uh, I live in America. America is not a country. It's a business. Now fucking pay me. Yeah. And then, and then, then cut to, to the credits. But like what songs so played over the credits? I can't remember. The best things in life are free. <laughs> but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need money. Like, again, the metaphor is not so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Well, and they played heroin during the heroin scene. Let's talk about this really quickly. <laughs> All right. I, this is one of those those moments in a movie where it's both, like, so obvious of a choice, it's idiotic, and also it's, so inspired it by totally me. Worked. <laughs> it totally worked. I felt like none of, it wasn't like some movies where the music choices didn't work. It, I felt like all the music choices worked, yeah. it's just that they were, like, a hammer over the head. We just watched something that had really gratuitous needle drops, and this, like, definitely well, toes... Was it, was it Guardians of the Galaxy? Yes, there you go. But this also toes, this toes the line for gratuitous needle drops. Like I said, money plays at the end and heroin plays during heroin, but at the same time, oh, and the man comes around when Brad Pitt first shows up. But at the same time, it's like, the style of the movie is so aggressive and in your face that it kind of works. Like, it, it is also, like, I don't know how to explain it other than it's, like, both a thing that really works for the movie and a thing that kind of is, like, a ding against the movie at the same time. I don't know how to explain it better than that. It's just the compromise <laughs> of, like, experimenting with, uh, I, I guess, cliche? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, so... We kept talking about how before before we watched it about how how this movie is actually pretty short. It's like a hundred and hundred. It's ninety seven. It's ninety seven minutes. And again, I will stand by this, but it still feels very long after the after James Gandolfini shows up. But anyway, this movie was originally two and a half hours long. The Oof. the rough cut Oof. of it. And I found out that Garrett Dillahunt Dillahunt yeah. got cut out of this movie. Man, poor guy. But also... I love Garrett Dillahunt so Also, much. you know who else got cut out of this movie? Sam Shepard. <laughs> yeah. He only... I read that he only got... He's in the main cast, and he has, like, maybe six minutes in the movie. Wow, that much? Yeah. I I, say, does like, he have a line? Yeah, he has some lines. He's the guy who goes with, oh, let's to Ray... He just says, let's grab a beer. Yeah. I remember that line. Yeah, but... Oh, I yeah, guess I would say it's, like, it's usually less like, than two minutes yeah, even makes like it the final six. cut. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's barely in R.I.P. Is he dead now? Yeah, he died last year. I, it's, it, he's one of those people where it's like, I thought he died for, oh, so long ago, and so now Oh my just, god, if you want to like, cry, read Patti Smith's tribute to him. Oh yeah, oh, he did okay. die. Okay, yeah. I remember that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Chris Christopherson is still alive. Yeah, but oh. he is fucking old, <laughs> he's man. Super old, yeah. Yeah, but he's still. Uh, he's got some some disease. Yeah, he's the other one who it's like I thought he was dead for a long time. No, he's still, still kicking alive. it. And of course, he'll be alive when the new A Star Is Born comes out because you oh, know great. we need a third one of Maybe those. Maybe he'll cameo in it as the the old man who winks at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like the Stanley of A Star Is Born. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the director, in Andrew Dominic, because yeah. you said it seemed like it was something he was trying to work out, and I would disagree with that based on the research that I did about him. 
he seems kind of like a reluctant director. Hmm. One of the quotes I found from him was, uh, making movies is hard. Uh, he talked about how Ridley Scott is one of those guys where if he, after two weeks, isn't making a movie, he has to, like, start getting back into it and, like, make another movie. And he was like, I don't get that. I totally don't. (laughs) He and I have the same hair right now. (laughs) Well, yeah, he's only done, his debut was in 2000, and he's only done four total movies Yeah, and and one of the, at least half of them are with Brad Pitt then. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and he basically, as you mentioned, discovered Eric Bana. Yep. But, so, uh, on top of that, he, one of the things he said about making movies was, he, you have to get up at 5 a.m., it's political, you feel like you're failing 90% of the time, it's a tough job. And so, I feel like he loves it, but he doesn't want to do it all the time. Yeah. And so, that's why his movies are, like, pretty spaced out. And he clearly cares a lot about it and, like, spends a lot of time planning it out and and getting all the shots figured out because that's why his movies are gorgeous. Like, I, for a long time, touted the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford as... Just an incredible movie. It's it's long, but it is so worth it. It's like a neo-western. Well, Brad Pitt is uh, Jesse James. And yeah. he's there. It's just so good, and it looks beautiful. The cinematographer for it is the guy who shot Blade Run- the new Blade Runner, but he also shoots most of the Coen Brothers movies. Oh, man, it is incredible. Yeah. It is like a really great movie if you have like... Roger a, Deakins. If you have like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, it's totally worth spending watching... Um, but so that was the movie he did after Choppers. And one of the other things he said was it's like impossible to do a movie without a, a, a movie star. And he said the problem with getting a movie star is miscasting. Yeah. Hmm. And so that's part of why him and Brad Pitt work together is because he like knows he can, he and Brad Pitt are, are friends. And so yeah. he can like get Brad Pitt but then he can cast him correctly. Yeah, we talked about this with Edmund. You gotta have your stable of people. Yeah, you, you gotta know have you your like on. group of people that you can call well, on. This movie had oh every, so many so many beloved people. Oh, I, and they were all. I have to say this: all the performances were incredible. Everyone was like, Scoot obviously got a career bump because of this movie, and he deserved it because he's really great. He is so subtly good. Like he, there that scene with him and Brad Pitt in the bar where he like barely speaks, but you can just feel how nervous and conflicted he is. Is so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, but one of the things I learned about Andrew Dominic that I didn't know is in between. So he's got a new movie coming out that he's doing with Tom Hardy. Ooh. And it's called War Party. So oh, yeah, I saw War Party. The IMDb description is super vague. Yeah, it's like plot unknown. It said like uh, a, an adventure thriller involving the Navy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. But so he's got that coming up, but he did a documentary like a year or two ago with Nick Cave. About Nick Cave, yeah. About Nick Cave. And he and Nick Cave have been friends for a long time. But Nick Cave actually commissioned and financed the documentary as a way of avoiding the media because um, his son had died. 
and oh, yeah. he didn't want to be asked about it, and so he he asked Andrew Dominic to do this documentary mm-hmm. that kind of addressed it in a personal way. But I found out, and it, it was only shot in ten days, and I actually got like critical acclaim, and it did very well. So it's like it did pretty successfully at the box office. But I found out that Nick Cave's son passed away because he fell off a cliff. Oh yeah, he was tripping on LSD. Oof. And he fe- and he, he fell tripped. to his death. Yeah. Oh, Emily. <laughs> oh, oh. But isn't that sad? It's like touching that he financed and commissioned it himself. I thought that was really cool that he and he had like one of the conditions was that he had final cut. And I read that he at the end didn't end up having final cut and he was upset by some of the things that ended up in the movie, but once he saw it at the premiere, he thought it was like a beautiful love letter to his son. I thought that was so sweet. Um, especially from a guy who hasn't done a documentary. And a guy um, who makes movies about people killing people, primarily. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> true. Um, but uh, I also found out that Andrew Dominic is one of the people who submitted to the sight and sound list. Oh. The, like, uh, the last time around. And he submitted his top ten movies. And so here's some of his top ten movies. Raging Bull, Badlands, Blue Velvet, Night of the Hunter, Barry Lyndon, which, man, maybe I gotta watch Barry Lyndon again. It's great. I love Barry Lyndon. I, I fucking mean, hate it. It's super slow, again, continuing to defend slow movies, but it's really great. Man, I, I hated it. Emily, we gotta add it to our Thanksgiving list. I like movies where nothing happens sometimes. Yeah, but do you like this movies? This is Kubrick where nothing happens, so it's beautiful. It looks amazing. But do you like movies where a guy wears a terrible wig the whole time and is in a carriage and and nothing happens? See, a terrible wig is going to watch Fish Called Wanda in a couple of weeks, so... <laughs> well, um, you say it's, it's a Kubrick? Yeah. I don't think I've ever met a Kubrick I didn't like. Ugh, it's so... It's, it's the longest it's my Kubrick, least but it's, favorite uh, Kubrick. it's pretty good. I like it. Ugh, hey, Car- I want to mention this... Peace Kubrick is not great. I want to mention this really quickly. Uh, just... Randomly, uh, the cinematographer for this movie is—I want to say it's Greg Frazier, but Greg is spelled G-R-E-I-G. So who knows? But Greg Frazier, who shot this, Greg. Uh, also <laughs> he also went on to shoot. Um, he was the cinematographer for Foxcatcher. If oh, you, hey, that movie. Yeah, if you remember wow. that. Which, that movie is, at very least, beautiful. Another slow, beautiful movie. Uh, he I was, like that movie. He was the cinematographer for Rogue One. Okay. And uh, he was recently nominated oh, for an Oscar work? for Lion. So, oh. So, yeah, he's, he's like, definitely... Wow, very diverse. Yeah, but also definitely very visual movies. Like, he's, he's clearly yeah. getting a lot of work and... I feel like he's probably going to be a very important cinematographer in the next decade or so. But, like, he he only started being a cinematographer on feature films within the past ten years. So he's still very new. Still got to watch Foxcatcher. Yeah. You, you would like it. I love Steve Carell. There's also well, a lot of, like, Ruffalo. Crazy Rich People movies? And, yeah, it's another yeah. American, uh, like, American capitalism and, like, uh, like the power structure he of the rich and all that stuff. He bought people and kept yeah. them on his compound and trained them. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and Ruffalo. Another thing, since uh, we're getting close to the end of the discussion, I meant to bring this up. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about this movie is because this movie, like Mother, is a CinemaScore F movie. Uh, CinemaScore is this 
uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's They're a, a market research firm. Yeah, a market research firm. Based but in they, Las Vegas. They base this off of, they base their rankings off of audiences who pay to see a movie. I'm like, I think they usually do this on the opening night of a movie, but people who paid to go see a movie on the opening night, they have them fill out a survey afterwards based on like what they thought, and the movie gets a letter ranking. I saw a perfect example is that Girls Trip got an A-plus last year. Loved <laughs> uh, it! But Mother got an F. And Mother is one of a very small number of movies. We have a couple other movies from the Cinema Score list coming up on Secret Cinema eventually, but Steven Soderbergh's Solaris is on there. Nicolas Cage's version of The Wicker Man is on there. But Killing Them Softly is on well, there. Well, didn't you say Bug is on there? Bug is on there. Uh, Silent House. Darkness. Uh, there's all sorts of... There's good movies and there's bad movies. But Killing Them Softly is in my mind, definitely one of the best movies on that list. And I think it's it, it was really worth talking about that this movie that we all agreed is very beautiful but kind of slow is a movie that people who went and saw it opening night hated. And they gave it an F. Even Roger Ebert didn't like this movie. No, two stars. Two stars. So it seems like there, I, there's obviously like a lot is, of... Is two stars thumb in the middle? Two stars is thumbs down. Thumb in the middle is two and a half. Oh, okay. But I don't know, it just, it's so weird that, like, it's so weird with the movies, like, that have such a strong negative reaction. And I have to assume well, it's a big it, part is the audience expectation. Like, Brad Pitt's Just like it. the movie Head. People hated that movie, yeah. but look at it <laughs> yeah. now. Well, and imagine you go, you think you're going to go see, like, a crime movie, and then you actually see, like, an allegorical movie about the American economy. That makes yeah. you feel sad and depressed because repeatedly the line of we're all on our own is throughout sprinkled throughout the movie. And there's yeah. no likable characters also. Yeah. No, and it's not like, no, there's, it's not oh. even like, besides Gandolfini, no character is like Also, and the dialogue, these unlikable characters have dialogue like, you wouldn't want to rape them, but all the plumbing works fine. And uh, where's, where's another line? Uh, Stop acting like your anus is a national treasure. Like, there's a bunch of... I realized halfway through this movie that, like, every line of dialogue it, that isn't, like, plot dialogue is basically disgusting. It's, it's misogynistic. Like, it's, it's very misogynist and very, like, like, like scummy sexuality or, like, the, the monologue I'm Russell has about, like, being in the car with all the dogs and the dogs are, like, pooping in the car oh, and they yeah. can roll down the windows. They had a really good fart sound effect in there. <laughs> the sand. But so, like, yeah, just, it's a movie that, like, yeah, there, I, I guess, yeah, now that I, I spell it out, you can see why people would hate it. But again, it's so, it's so weird that, like, they wouldn't at least market this as an art film. It's not like, an, an yeah. assassination of Jesse James was, like, a mainstream super hit. It was an art film yeah. success. This is very clearly, an, like, it's an art, it's an artistic play on a genre film. And genre films are not, like, well, at least this type of genre film is not successful right now. Usually when we see, like, crime movies, they're like, Mark Wahlberg's in it. And you can basically... Man, you, fuck Mark You can Wahlberg. basically write the movie as soon as you see the trailer. And this... Granted, you you know what's going to happen, but the point isn't the plot. The point is what they do with it and what they are trying to comment on in the American economy with it and so on and so forth. Let's start calling Mark, Wal Mark Wahlberg. Walmartberg? Walmartberg. <laughs> oh. 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 Marky Walmart. <laughs> That's not what I was 
good. <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> Why are you so stupid now? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I just realized this isn't even the first time I've made a pun out of Mark Wahlberg's name on this podcast. <laughs> what was the first time? <laughs> Mark Walnuts. <laughs> I was gonna say shit burke. <laughs> <Hey>, nice. <laughs> what a belt up. Not even good. Oh. Alright, is there anything else we want to talk about about this? Movie? I wanted to say also that the, like you said, this movie got an F from Cinema Score, but it was nominated for a Palm Dior at Cannes. Yeah. So take that. <laughs> like, yeah, the reviews from Khan when it premiered were like, this is the least subtle movie ever, but it is still really good. Oh, great. This is a movie, well, let's say, let's compare it to, say, The Last Jedi, where the people wow. who <laughs> wanted to go see it hate it, but critics really like it. So this Ooh. movie is equivalent to The Last Jedi. <laughs> yep, it's the same. Go see you both. Go see both. I, oh, I do, I want to say... Throughout Scoot's dialogue... Hey, I mean, there is the theme of capitalism, so there's... Yep. Yeah, throughout Scoot's dialogue, he has the best mumbling, clearly understandable dialogue. Oh, he's the best. He, I mean, the, um, Mendelssohn is Australian, and he also kind of, I mean, he's got his thick accent, and he doesn't open his mouth much, but Scoot plays, like, such a good... I don't know how he moves his mouth like that because when I mumble, people do not understand me. Yeah, it's it's good point. It's like perfectly underplayed. It's very low class yeah. sounding. Yeah. Um, but obviously because it's a movie, it couldn't be just, you know, jumbled up. Yeah, he can't sound like Snoop on the wire because it's like he's more or less the protagonist. So but they have him yeah, it's I don't know. They how do to his it. they do his uh, character and his even his voice. Down to his, like, clothes, he's very, like, low-class. He's perfectly... It seems like him and the Afflecks are probably friends. Well, someone someone pointed out that he basically plays the Casey Affleck role in this movie. Yeah. Like, it's almost like Casey Affleck was too big after uh, Assassination of Jesse James, and they are like, we gotta get, uh, like, a person who can do a dead-on impersonation. Also, I'd like to point out, we're talking about how characters, like, perfectly realized, Ben Mendelsohn's character is so gross. Oh, like, he so says gross. a lot of gross things, but they, like, make him look so dirty and he, sweaty in every scene. They talk about how he smells in the movie, too, and looking at him, you're like, yeah, he smells He's like so urine. sweaty. He and smells like urine. There's a couple times where he has, like, dog shit on his hands, and he looks like he has dog shit on his body. <laughs> like, he just, like, his hair is, like, clumpy. Well, he's, his, like, a heroin addict. Yeah, but it's, like, it's it's so believable. It's not, like, heroin chic or just, like, yeah. like anything like that. He looks like a yeah, dirty Yeah, everyone really does criminal. a great job at yeah. this movie. All right, teachable moments. Teachable moments. Are you also, guys Ray ready? Liotta's eyes are so pretty. Yeah, Ray Liotta's crazy, uh... Pretty cocaine stare. But kind of like what you were saying about Richard Jenkins, he's got Scarface. He does, he's got Pac-Mark. Yeah. Yeah. But pocketmarks work. You need people who don't have beautiful Yeah, no, it, it adds character. Alright, so either you guys ready with your teachable moments or do I gonna Ugh. lead off? 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't got mine fully formed yet. All right, well, I will try to come up with one real quick. Uh, so, <laughs> so my teaching moment dun, is dun. okay. I, I'm sure I've touched on this before, but. If you're going to make something that is very straightforward or uh, you have a movie that's kind of just like, you, you know what the movie's going to be. There's not a lot of complicated visual filmmaking you need to convey the story. Then you should have a lot of fun with the filmmaking. Um, we, we got, I mentioned Schizopolis before, but that's, that's more of like a private project. I guess the better comparison in terms of like a teachable moment is like a Brian De Palma movie. Brian De Palma movies are very straightforward plot-wise, or if they're not, they're at least very simplistic. They're very simplistic in a lot of ways. And the balance, the reason you would watch a Brian De Palma movie, despite how stupid the plot may be, is because of what he's going to do with the camera. How he's going to make the experience cinematic. And this is not cinematic in, like, the Hitchcock, Orson Welles sense. This is cinematic in the Godard, uh, like... Peter Kubelka sense where it's like experimenting with the film medium Just to make you feel driving. like not the typical emotions that you would feel with this sort of genre especially like we said the first 30 minutes is like is stressful and dirty and weird in a way that is just like immediately engrossing and overwhelming and there's the stress you feel during that bank robbery scene does not go away no matter how many times you've seen that scene and so my teachable moment is just that if you are going to direct something and you think the material is straightforward or the material is, is is going to just work no matter what, then why not have fun? And why not try some directing techniques? Because if people are going to follow no matter what, they might actually follow your line of thought visually. And so, yeah, why not try something new? Oh, that's really similar to something I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I love all movies. Almost all movies that critique capitalism, because fuck yeah, I want to watch that all day. Yeah. And I almost like can't have an opinion on this, because I would watch it if it weren't beautiful, and I'd still be like, yeah, you go, girl, or man, whatever. Yeah, all men. You go, Andrew. <laughs> and I don't know, I, but because it, it's such a relief to watch it in a fun and beautiful way, with fun uh, effects, um, and... I hope more directors just don't give a shit about whatever that scoring system is. Yeah. Because I will take all the F movies I can if they end up like this. Yeah, Mother was great. I and mean, Bug is great. Bug is so great. Yeah. And now because we have the internet and the proliferation of, you know, like, I feel different like... rating systems and word of mouth and how things spread, like, it's so wonderful to live in the time that we live in to be able to watch a movie like this and to connect with people online who are like, I also enjoyed this movie, you know, like, you don't have to go by those ratings. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's such, like, I'm so glad we live in modern days. Yeah, this movie might not have made it if, uh... Well, if this if was made in, like, the 80s, I feel like Andrew Dominic's career would have been over. Like, people would have been like, oh, you never get to work again, whereas now it was, like, like, um, like not a huge success, but it got enough support, and it was critically acclaimed enough that people are like, he's gonna work again. As we said, he's gonna make that War Party movie, and he made that Nick Cave With Tom Hardy, too. But, uh, yeah. 
Party party! I just think of something like uh, a, a, another future secret cinema movie, Walker, where uh, oh, a man, director a director made some uh, choices and experimented, and it did not go over so well for him. But we won't get into that now. We gotta just see that guy. Yeah, we did. He was goofy. But hey, Carrie, did you figure out your teachable moment? Yes, I did. So. As I watch more and more movies, and I get older and wiser, I, uh... What? Turn and face the computer. Okay. <laughs> hey, computer. Or audience. As I watch more movies, the thing that I have come to appreciate is that I don't have to like the whole movie to like the movie. <laughs> um... And this is a movie where I feel like that fits. I, as I mentioned, I think the first 30 minutes of this movie are absolutely stunning and incredible. They're like a testament to Andrew Dominic's ability to direct and tell a story and create tension and character. As Emily and I gushed about that the heroin scene is absolutely marvelous. Like the way that, that drug use is depicted. It's not something that I have necessarily seen before in another movie. It's very much stylized in a personal way. And even though I don't really care about the rest of the movie, I mean, it's still great and beautiful, and it, it leads to a conclusion that's, you know, nice, but it just doesn't do a lot for the first 30 minutes. Uh, I still like this movie. I would still recommend people watching this movie. And so, I, I guess... My teachable moment is just that you can like a movie even if you don't like a majority of what the movie is. I feel like that's a weird way to phrase it. Because <laughs> if you don't like a majority of the movie, you then you you don't like it. Then it's like I I brought this up before, but it's like Heartbreakers, where I don't like a majority of Heartbreakers, but I really like Jennifer Love Hewitt's performance. <laughs> I feel like we talk about Heartbreakers more than anyone has ever talked yeah. about Heartbreakers. I don't know why it comes up. We're not going to do an episode <laughs> on it, but I always think it was or my go-to. I always think it was my go-to of like a movie that I hate that has like a few elements that are like unbelievably strong. Is one of the elements Jason Lee? Because, no, I think he's here. Uh, I think Sarah Silverman is a bad element in that movie. I could not tell you. I don't like Jennifer Love Hewitt in literally anything but Heartbreakers, and I could not tell you why. But I can tell you why. I'm just saying, if you think if, if you if you don't like a majority of the movie, I I probably don't probably like don't the like movie. The movie. <laughs> well, I don't know how to phrase it then because I I do still I do. You like the movie without enjoying it, maybe. Like you sure. respect what it's doing. Yeah, that's you, like, definitely okay, true. Like, like what I said about the Last Jedi yesterday, which is I respect it, but I was bored. <laughs> yes. Is that what you feel? Okay. Sure. There we go. All thanks, right. Thanks, Paulo. No problem. We can do it. <laughs> Getting comfy. Carrie's very comfy right now. Uh, we will not be posting any pictures of it, but but wow, me know. that's Carrie's <laughs> very comfy. Leaving it up to the imagination. Carrie, yeah. oh my god, put your clothes back on. Carrie, no! Guys, it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it. Right. This has been the Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. So I'm Emily. I'm Carrie. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm fully clothed. Yeah, she is. But she'll be killing them softly. With my son. I was going to say with her beauty, but... Yeah, <laughs> oh, like no. You, I tried to I tried to end on a nice note, but no, now we all oh. have to die. So, bye, everybody. Die!
Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Crone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Polo short films at www.video.com or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com. Follow the Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast on Twitter at Colton Sunday or like us on Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lane Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Big decision.